Father, we ask that as we look at our denominational history, we can see in it the same sacredness as the stories of prophets and kings. May we gain the lessons that you have preserved there for us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so it may not be immediately apparent why we're doing this, but that's okay, just just bear with me for a bit on this one. We looked at Lucifer's rebellion in heaven. We looked at Christ's response on earth. A couple of key points from each of those. Lucifer's rebellion, there were all sorts of tactics. There were nine accusations. When Christ... Christ waited 4,000 years. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a substantial period of time. Maybe different if you're an angelic being or something. You know, it may not uh, register the same as it would for us. But Christ waited 4,000 years, and then he came. And in response to Lucifer's accusations and tactics, Christ employed a single weapon. The revelation of the character of the Father. And the tactics that Christ used was a balanced, combined ministry of preaching and healing. We'll see some statements on that in a bit. What we're going to do now is we're going to jump down. I'm going to give you a little bit of a spoiler here. We're going to jump down, and we're starting here right now. We're talking about what I would refer to as the the good Kellogg, often overlooked in recent years, for many years, the good that God tried to accomplish through Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. And then the next presentation, which we probably won't squeeze in right now, but maybe we'll get to a little bit of it, uh, is going to be the bad Kellogg. Because Dr. Kellogg, unfortunately, went from being one whom God intended to accomplish great things through, to one through whom the devil managed to accomplish great things for his side. So that's, uh, that's kind of the overview of where we're going with this. So let's just jump on in. Subtitle, Dr. Kellogg, works better if I turn it on. There we go. Dr. Kellogg said, lend to the Lord. Lend to the Lord. Okay, so Dr. Kellogg is without a doubt the most intriguing, interesting, colorful personality that Adventism has ever produced. Um, Ellen White, of course, stands in a unique position as the messenger of the Lord. But beyond that, uh, Dr. Kellogg is easily hands down the the guy that I'd most like to talk to. (laughs) Just to figure out what in the world is going on in this guy's head. Um, We're talking about the good Kellogg, and it is as I said, has, was for many years completely overlooked, or, uh, almost completely overlooked, as to what God was wanting to accomplish through his agency. Dr. Kellogg has done a work that no man I know of among us has had qualifications to do. Okay, now you could say, well, yeah, sure, he was the only doctor. And, well, that wasn't ever totally true, but, you know, he was, yeah, whatever. You could say, that, oh, he had those qualifications. I'm not sure that that's the qualification. I don't think it's the legal qualification so much as he's talking about here. As an individual, he had qualifications, skills, talents, abilities, personal characteristics. Writing directly to him, this is quite unusual because she was usually very careful about saying complimentary things to Kellogg. She said, my dear brother, as I have before written to you, I know that the Lord has placed you in a very responsible position, standing as you do, as the greatest physician in our world. That's, that's an interesting assessment. <laughs> okay. God says of Dr. Kellogg, he is my physician. Respect him and sustain him. She was writing to other people that time. Okay. Dr. Kellogg, with earnest, untiring energy, has testified by his works that he believes the word of God and that he is not content to be merely a theoretical believer. He has put his belief into works. He has faith and works combined. His work in the Medical Missionary Line has had the appearance of being disproportionately large. 
But he has seen the feeble efforts made by the churches whose practice has not been proportionate to the light, and he has undertaken to educate his students to do service for the Lord. In this, he has only tried to walk in the light. He has been doing the very work the Lord has specified should be done. Speaking of Kellogg's work, this is not a fanatical and superstitious work. It is the work that Christ did when he was in our world. Dr. Kellogg has not betrayed his trust. The Lord has wrought with him in surgical operations, giving him wisdom and success. Men not of our faith feel that, although Dr. Kellogg is a Seventh-day Adventist, yet he has wisdom and knowledge and a wide influence. They feel it would be the height of folly to ignore this. In one of the AMA histories, they just kind of in passing refer to Kellogg as the single most influential physician in the development of American medicine over a period of about 60 years. Uh, he had a lot of influence. He was a fascinating guy. I'd love to tell all the interesting stories. The guy was driven. He was uh, just fascinating, interesting little stories, which I'm not going to take the time or I'd kill my opportunity to talk here. Um, <clears throat> The truth is that for a significant period of time, Dr. Kellogg was one of the strongest influences for good in the church. And then, unfortunately, due to his own weaknesses and errors and the contributions of others' weaknesses and errors, he became one of the strongest influences for evil. So we're talking about the good Kellogg here at the moment, and what's nice about his experience is that it affords us a relatively modern-day example of both the work of Christ and the work of Lucifer. And that's why I focus on this. <clears throat> uh, okay, about eight... I don't know why this is here, but that's okay. Let's read it. About 1891, Dr. Kellogg revealed to one of his assistants his secret for staying five years ahead of the medical profession. He said when a new thing is brought out in the medical world, he knew from his knowledge of the spirit prophecy whether it belonged in our system or not. If it did, he instantly adopted it and advertised it while the rest of the doctors were slowly feeling their way, and when they finally adopted it, he had five years to start of them. On the other hand, when the medical profession were swept off their feet by some new fad, if it did not fit the light we had received, he simply did not touch it. When the doctors finally discovered their mistake, they wondered how Dr. Kellogg did not get caught. The truth is that Dr. Kellogg's rise and fall hinged on his relationship to the instruction of the spirit of prophecy. As he honored God's prophet, the Lord honored him. Uh, well, is there some reason I was going to say something about this? No, okay. Um, no, okay, let's just go on. If Dr. Kellogg will trust himself wholly with God, he, he, capital H, will give him tact and perception and skill as a practitioner that has seldom been excelled. Let's just stop there for just a moment. Don't read ahead. This, uh, there was a mention in a previous statement about God gave him skill in surgical operations. And this comment here about him being, uh, you know, having skill that has seldom been excelled. Kellogg set a world record for thoracic, abdominal, whatever, you know, operations without a fatality. At the time, in the late 1890s, well, no, the, yeah, I don't know, sometime in the 1890s, wrapping over just maybe into the early 1900s, one out of four, maybe one out of five abdominal surgery patients would die. 25, 20% fatalities. Anytime you sliced into the abdomen. Kellogg set a record of, I think it was like 164 straight with no fatalities. Uh, that did attract people's attention. Anyhow, okay. So, if Dr. Kellogg will trust himself wholly to God, the Lord will give him skill, right? Angels of God will stand by his side when human life is in peril, and wisdom from above will be given him. God designs that Dr. Kellogg shall still advance. He has only begun to climb the ladder. The Lord will give him grace that he is now ignorant of, and he will see as he has never seen before. He will realize that there is to be an intelligent discarding of all drugs. Skill and knowledge is to be given him, which he is in no case to keep to himself. He is to educate 
educate, educate. Now this is kind of a side issue, but I just, I, I was you know, kind of stunned when I ran into this particular statement. I really like this one. It helps me explain uh, some of what I consider somewhat anomalous situations in Ellen White's writings, because you can find statements that, no drugs, no drugs, you know, really hard, bam, no drugs, type of statements, okay? And some of us have embraced those. Well, praise the Lord, that's good. You can also find statements where she says, I would have given him quinine. I'm sorry, you let him die. <laughs> okay? I knew the cousin of the young lad who was allowed to die of malaria. Um, parents were missionaries to Africa. They'd read the no drug statements. Their son came down with malaria. The only treatment that anyone had at the time was quinine, which is a terrible. It's a poison. It's, you know, that's all there is to it. There's a poison. And the whole thing with quinine is if you give this much, it'll kill the, the uh, plasmodium, which is the bug. If you give that much, it kills the patient. So you're trying to get that much. <laughs> you know, it's a terrible drug. But they'd read these no drug statements and they simply gave him no drugs whatsoever. They did what they could and it was totally ineffective and the child died. Well, they came back to the United States and a period of time later and they approached Ellen White and they said, Sister White, do you have any counsel for us? And she says, yes, we must use common sense. I, I would have given him the quinine. Well, how do you deal with a no drug statement when you give him drugs? Well, here's the answer. To me, this is the answer. He will realize there is to be an intelligent discarding of all drugs. When is it intelligent to discard quinine? when you have a better alternative. Exactly right. I always used to use that actually as, a, as, a, as my, kind of my classic uh, illustration when I was talking to my students in, in class and whatnot. Now, how many million people die of malaria every year? Wouldn't it be cool to come up with a natural remedy for the tropical malaria? You can use hydrotherapy. They used to have malaria in the United States, you know, Michigan, uh, maybe even up into this area where it was hot, humid summers. They would have malaria, but it was um, plasmodium vivax, I think, something like that. And the tropical variety is plasmodium falciparum. The hydrotherapy works really well on vivax. Totally ineffective on falciparum. You can do all the hydrotherapy you want, the guy's going to die. I mean, or, you know, he's gonna, it's going to run its course, whatever it is. You know, it's, your, your hydrotherapy is not going to change it. And then, you know, maybe I'm just years behind in this whole thing, but I always used to say, wouldn't it be cool to come up with a natural remedy? Well, they got one. It's called, it's called, uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh. It's a tea. Um, oh, it's got a neat name. I can't think of the name. I may come back to it. Anyhow, it's a tea, and it's, it's not 100% effective, I'm told, but it's like 90% effective. And so some people say, plant the bush everywhere, make, teach people to make tea. And others are saying, well, let's analyze this and find out what the active ingredient is so we can extract it and standardize it and sell it as a tablet. <laughs> so that's natural. But anyhow, I like this. This, to me, helps answer some of these questions in the medical field because Dr. Kellogg was just beginning to learn all that God wanted to teach him. He was to teach others. And Kellogg didn't learn all that God wanted to teach him. Hence, we haven't learned it, and we perhaps in many cases have not learned it on our own since. So anyhow, that's a kind of a side. But this is the magnitude of what God was trying to accomplish through the doctrine. Let's go on. Okay, a few background details here. Uh, there was a ministerial institute and general conference in 1888 in Minneapolis. You may have heard of it, but here's the key thing I want to focus on. After the Minneapolis meeting, or after the meeting at Minneapolis, Dr. Kellogg was a converted man, and we all knew it. We could see the converting power of God working in his heart and life. Okay, so that's really fascinating to me. My initial question is, what was different? You know, what could you see that was different? You could see this converting power in his life. Everybody knew that he was converted, so what was different? You know, I usually say, did he stop going to the bar on Friday nights? No, he did not stop going to the bar on Friday nights because he never had gone to the bar on Friday nights, okay? 
this was not, Kellogg was converted as he was a Baptist and now all of a sudden became an Adventist. In 1888, he'd been the medical director of the, sanit uh, the sanitarium in Battle Creek for 12 years already. He was a lifelong Adventist. He was, you know, born and raised. He was a pillar of the church, okay? But now he was converted. So I want to know what's the difference. And the difference is a highly technical issue. He started being nice to people. That's the difference that they saw. Okay, well, <clears throat> uh, skipping over a whole ton of interesting things, it turns out that Dr. Kellogg was on to something with this whole conversion thing, right? And being nice to people. When the believer is justified because of the merit of Christ, now I should point out, you know, this is, the, this is 1888, this is Minneapolis, Jones, Wagner, Righteousness by Faith, that whole business, okay? So Kellogg was converted on the issue of righteousness by faith at the Minneapolis meeting, right? When the believer is justified because of the merit of Christ, he is not free to work on righteousness. Faith works by love and purifies the soul. Faith buds and blossoms and bears a harvest of precious fruit. Where faith is, good works appear. The sick are visited. The poor are cared for. The fathers and the widows are not neglected. The naked are clothed. The destitute are fed. That's what converted people do. That's what Kellogg started doing. Why? Because he was converted. That's worth noting. This is the stuff that converted people do. Faith in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, the one who pardons our sins and transgressions, the one who is able to keep us from sin and lead us in his footsteps, is set forth in the 58th chapter of Isaiah, which is the great medical missionary chapter. Here are presented the fruits of a faith that works by love and purifies the soul from, from selfishness. Faith and works are here combined. Thy righteousness shall go before thee, quoting from Isaiah 58. What does this mean? It means Christ is our righteousness. But this is the chapter, deal your bread to the hungry, bring, and hungry, bring the poor or cast out to your house, so you see the naked, you will cover him. Um, all those things, anyhow, okay. Um, so, now, Kellogg was not your mere normal, nor, normal mortal, okay? If, if I decided being especially nice to people, you know, okay, I'd be nice to my next door neighbor, or, you know, or somebody that I met or knew, or something like that. Kellogg, no, Kellogg worked on a different level than the rest of us work, okay? So when Kellogg says, let's be nice, he says, let's be nice, right? One of the first things he thought of was, he, he did a little research. Some interesting details on that research, which I can't go into. It's not as straightforward as it sounds, but you know. He did some research, and he found there were, there were quite a few orphans. Um, Adventists tended to die on occasion, Right? And sometimes that would leave orphans. And he just went through the Review and Herald and he noted all the, you know, uh, the survivors listed, right? And he says, there's a lot of orphans out there. He says, we're not doing anything to care for them. That's not, that doesn't seem right. So in the summer of 1890, he uh, happened to be in, um, oh, I don't remember where, anyhow, upstate Michigan someplace. And... Um, Ellen White was there, and he asked her, he said, Sister White, what would you think about starting an orphanage? Now, what we do not know, and this, I'm just going to make this comment in passing without explaining why it's important. We don't know how he presented this precisely. We know he asked something about an orphanage. She responded and said, yes, it's a good idea. We're years behind in that sort of thing. She put that formally into a letter to the uh, directors of the Battle Creek Sanitarium. She said, um, I have had some conversation with your physician-in-chief in regard to starting an orphanage. I told him that this was a, a great idea, that we were years behind in that work. 48 words of commendation, okay? What we don't know is exactly what Kellogg, how he pitched it to Ellen White. What was she responding to? And it, it kind of the difference, the line that I would draw there is, was he saying, Sister White, should we do something as an emergency measure to take care of uh, orphans in, you know, within the church, our, our church members, you know, when they die, if they have little kids, should we do something to, to take care of those kids? That's one thing. The other thing that he might have said kind of on the far end of the continuum is, Sister White, should we start an orphanage to take in all the orphans of the world? <laughs> Okay, it's two different things. Uh, 
Um, that's actually a big issue, but that's for a different topic. So let's just move on. Okay, so he said, should we start an orphanage? And she said, yes. Okay, so in the general conference, that was summer of 1890, the general conference in January, February of 1891, Dr. Kellogg knows his parliamentary procedure. You know, Mr. Chairman, I make a motion, blah, 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 all that sort of thing. Here's part of what he had to say in that regard. I have given quite a good deal of thought and study to this subject of caring for children. My wife and I have given considerable attention to the work for a number of years. We have been planning to raise 40 or 50 children ourselves. Just as fast as we get any money, we will invest it in children. I've done that for several years. Every single dollar that can be saved from other necessary expenses goes into the education of children. Another interesting comment he made, same speech. He said, I do not believe we have any right to accumulate money. I think as long as we are well and have God's blessing upon our work, it is our duty to spend what we earn in God's work. I do not believe that in this age any man has a right to accumulate money. Okay, now, uh, there were two things in particular that he said that might have caught your attention. One was the, the whole thing about raising 40 or 50 children. That seems a bit excessive. The other thing is this, this comment here about, I don't think anybody has the, the right to accumulate money. Now, bear in mind, back in those days, they didn't have any retirement accounts, so if you were going to retire, it was going to be on money that you accumulated. Okay? Uh, they didn't have Social Security. They didn't have 501, or no, what are they? 401s, yeah, 501Cs, that's a different issue. They didn't have them either yet. Anyhow, um, yeah, they didn't have 401Ks, didn't have 401Bs, didn't have, you know, any of that stuff, okay? IRAs, nope, none of that, okay? So if you were going to save up for your old age, you were going to, you know, put it in the bank or bury it in your backyard or something, I don't know. So that's kind of what Kellogg's talking about. He says, I don't think anyone has the right to do that as a Christian. Well, that's a fascinating comment. Is he serious on that? Yeah? Is he serious on anything he's saying, or is he just shooting hot air here? Okay. Well, I don't know a lot about the details of his financial accounts. I can tell you that he and his wife raised 42 children. They legally adopted 17, and the other 25 were what we would refer to as you know, foster children today, something like that. I do know that he was extremely generous with his own funds. He paid for the medical education of more than 50 students. Um, he did a lot of things. He, uh, he hosted the general conference session. Picked up the bill for all the room and board, for all the delegates. When they came to Battle Creek, they'd, most of them would stay at the sanitarium, and he'd cover their food and board. He did that once after he was disfellowshipped. Fascinating little twist. I'm not going to make anything out of that too much, but anyhow. Okay, well, interesting, interesting. Let's go on. <clears throat> um, the, well, okay, one more comment on this financial thing here. You know? um, I would offer, at the very least, uh, two comments. Number one, I think I think it's worth some consideration, just out of respect for the doctor, if nothing else. And secondly, I would offer the consideration that uh, one size probably doesn't fit all in every regard. Okay? So what might be right for me may be the height of stupidity for you. Um, and timing is, timing is a factor too. Okay? Uh, in regard to financial support and such things. I think it's worth noting that Jesus worked in the carpenter shop until he was 30. That was a paying job. But then one day he hung up the apron. And in a culture which saw wealth as the sign of the blessing of God, he became a homeless, unemployed, itinerant preacher who still nonetheless managed to feed 5,000 people at a time. That had to be really frustrating to the scribes and Pharisees. Okay. Anyhow, so, um, yeah, I'll just leave those things with you and let them rattle around in your cage. Okay. <clears throat> well, what did Kellogg do about the fact he's converted? He wants to help people now. Okay. So, number one was the orphanage. 
At the General Conference Session in 1901, they got a motion passed. Yes, let's start an orphanage. And they said you can raise money through the Review and Herald. They started putting ads or you know, appeals in the Review, whatnot. And, and what happened is that in the next year, they found out that the church was not really gung-ho on an orphanage project. You can tell that sometimes by the lack of donations. <laughs> there just wasn't a lot of money coming in for this orphanage thing. There was one group that was excited about the orphanage. And they were folks who were caring for orphans who didn't really want to. And so little kids started showing up at the train station in Battle Creek. Well, note pinned on the kid's shirt, Bobby, three years old, orphanage, Adventist Orphanage, Battle Creek. Just comes in on the train. Well, in time, by about, say, March, April of 1892, Dr. Kellogg had, I don't know, something like 25 of these little kids that had shown up. And no orphanage. The church had given just about, had given just enough money, they'd bought a piece of property, had absolutely no money to build. Well, Kellogg rented a couple of little cabins out behind the sanitarium and kept going in and stealing nurses. Oh, I'm sorry, I need you out here, lady. <laughs> I got problems out here. <laughs> and, uh, it was just two little cabins, you know, with 25 kids in there roaring around and creating havoc. Um, it wasn't good. There were a lot of people, frankly, who were not very fond of the orphanage project, and they would have been happy to see it just kind of quietly die away. Well... <laughs> Kellogg couldn't just let it die away. He had 25 little kids now. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do about that? So he started praying. He said, Lord, I need a lot of money, and I need it really fast. And the Lord answered his prayer. And he was given the largest single donation that had ever been given to the church at the, up till that time. What's interesting about it is that it came from a Mrs. Carolyn Haskell. No relation to Stephen Haskell, if you're familiar with him, Adventist pioneer minister guy. She wasn't an Adventist. She was actually a Presbyterian. But she happened to come to the sanitarium. She heard about different things, saw what was going on. Says, this is pretty impressive. Her husband had died about a year before and left her a significant chunk of change, and she wanted to do something as a memorial to him. So she approached Dr. Kellogg. She says, Dr. Kellogg, is there anything that... I could help out with a little money on. And he told her a very modest project that would cost about $100 a year, and you know, maybe thought she'd sign up for, for this on an ongoing basis. She listened politely, and she said, actually, I was thinking of something considerably larger than that. So then he says, oh, by the way, I've got this orphanage thing I've got to build. She ended up giving $30,000, largest donation church had ever received up to that point, and in case you have any confusion in your mind as to what inflation is doing to your currency, try building that. Hello? That. Uh-oh. Uh, oh, I see. I, I didn't read those. Oh, I should read these. Okay. Tell you what, let me come back to these in a second. Try building that for $30,000. Okay. That was built with Mrs. Haskell's money, every dime of it. Uh, there might have been some of her money left over, I don't know, but there was not a dime of Adventist money that went into that in, far, in terms of the actual construction itself. Okay? The property was purchased by Adventist funds, but the building was, uh, was all Mrs. Haskell. came to be known as the Haskell Home for Orphan Children in honor of her husband. Um, yeah, back to the inflation issue. I'm not exactly sure that you could buy all the doorknobs for $30,000. I know you couldn't buy the windows. Doorknobs, maybe. Windows, no. <laughs> it was way ahead of its time, actually. It, was, it, it provided room for um, a little over 100 orphans. But instead of having this like one big massive cavern inside where you th just threw little kids in, it was all kind of divided up into separate homes, separate family units. And they split them out as families. They didn't have, oh, this is where we keep all the one-year-olds, and this is where we keep all the two-year-olds. That's one of the worst ideas that's ever been invented, is take a whole bunch of kids that's all the same age and put them together in a big mass with a minimum of adult supervision. Think school, by the way. But anyhow, it's one of the worst ideas that's ever been done, okay? And so what, what Kellogg did was he split them out. 
So in this section of the building here, we've got family so-and-so, you know, and you've got an infant and a, a little older infant and a one-year-old and a three-year-old and a four-year-old and a five-year-old and, you know, and, and, and created like a family unit. There's all sorts of interesting social dynamics like that. The older ones learn some leadership ability because they get to boss the little kids around. The little kids, you know, see the leadership ability managed or, or you know, uh, modeled for them. It's, the family unit is, is a vastly better thing than a daycare. I'll just say that. Okay, but anyhow, now I want to go back and catch these, uh, these statements because I like them. <laughs> okay, so Dr. Kellogg said this. We shouldn't didn't see that we had a right to accumulate funds. Um, sort of, unse- and just as a separate thing, something that ran, I ran through, ran into, kind of caught my attention. Statements like this. This comes up, right? There we go. In the last great conflict of the controversy with Satan, those who are loyal to God will see every earthly support cut off. Okay, now Kellogg said, I don't think we have a right to accumulate funds. And so I see a certain parallelism in this idea. Every earthly support cut off. You know, I used to read, I mean, that's in Desire of Ages. That's a common statement, right? I used to read that and I'd think to myself, well, that's going to be a tough time. You know? The last great conflict. Every earthly support cut off. I wonder how we're going to deal with that. That's, that's, a, that's a tough deal. And then one day I was reading and I ran into another statement that just happened to use the same phrasing. It is safe to let go every earthly support and take the hand of him who lifted up and saved the sinking disciple on the stormy sea. It's safe. Well, that's encouraging. Yeah. That was nice. But just, the, just that thing about every earthly support, it just made me curious enough, so I just typed in every earthly support, hit the magic button. One more statement popped up. I love this. This is, this is killing. We can never perfect a round, full Christian experience until every earthly support is removed and the soul centers its entire affections about God. But just stop and think about it. Exactly when was it a good idea for Christians to depend on earthly support? (laughs) When was that a good idea? Okay. And so, basically, here's this thing. The first statement, oh, no, this terrible ordeal. And you get down to the third statement, and you find out that's exactly what we're trying to aim for. (laughs) That is the experience we are aiming for. I find it fascinating. Let's go on. Okay, so there's the Haskell home. At the same time, 1892, Dr. Kellogg, well, the story goes like this. There was a 16-year-old girl who came to the Battle Creek Sanitarium, spent about six weeks there. She was quite ill. Uh, She eventually went home to Chicago where she had a serious operation by some other physician. Why exactly you would have anyone other than Dr. Kellogg do your operation, I don't have a clue, but maybe this guy was a specialist or something. I don't know what the operation was. In any case, it was unsuccessful. And they sewed her back up and knew that she would die. Well, she came out from the anesthesia and, you know, had a few days, and, and, but they told her, I'm sorry, Missy, you're, you're dying. Okay. On her deathbed, she made her promise, or made her father promise. She said, Daddy, as a memorial to me, I want you to pay for a nurse from the Battle Creek Sanitarium to come down to Chicago and minister to the poor people. Said, there are no nurses anywhere on earth like those nurses in Battle Creek. Bring one of them down here to the poor people as, as a memorial to me. Well, the girl died. The father writes a letter to Kellogg. Kellogg was busy. He ignored the letter. Father writes a second letter. Kellogg was still busy. He ignored that letter, too. Father writes a third letter. Ah, Dr. Kellogg's a busy guy. Those letters are not getting any answer. And then the guy got really smart or lucky. I'm not sure which. He had his wife write a letter. Dr. Kellogg had a soft spot in his heart for mothers. What are you going to do? You know. So he goes marching over to the sanitarium, and he hunts up Emily Schranz. I don't know if this is Emily or not. This is definitely one of the uh, visiting nurses. Emily was the first. Emily was one of the best nurses in the sanitarium, and he went over and says, Emily, would you be willing to go down to Chicago and work for the poor? Emily said, yes. Other nurses followed. The program grew over time. Kellogg loved this program. They worked in an area known as the brewery, uh, so named because of the prevailing dietary. Um, It was a rough part of town. The cops wouldn't go there. Just nothing. No, ain't going there. 
Okay. Another name for it was Hell's Half Acre. A lot of people objected to that name, though, on the obvious fact that it was larger than that. But anyhow, the police would not go there. And um, they often stopped the nurses as they were marching in. Excuse me, ma'am. You need to turn right here. You don't want to go down that street. And they'd point to the little cross on their, their uniform. And they'd go marching on in. Kellogg loved that, uh, that whole operation. There were great stories, just, you know, life and death stories. The residents of that district worshipped those nurses. They were the only people in the whole world who treated them with any respect. And they loved them. That program was paid for by the, daughter, the father of the young lady, who also happened to be a non-Adventist. And so by the fall, well, I'm still a little confused. I have a, a transcribed article that the, the transcriptionist claimed it was from Kellogg and dated it January, February, 1893. I, I haven't yet been able to verify that that's a, a legitimate uh, article. Uh, and the legitimate dating. I know that what he wrote in that article, if in fact that's from Kellogg, and I think it is, it sounds like him, but you know, um, what, what's written in that article is, is essentially what he said to a gathering of the sanitarium workers on a Friday night on, I think it was like the 4th of November or something like that, 1892, I forget the exact date. He called them all together, and basically, just gonna make this real simple, he said, everybody else is doing stuff to help people. <laughs> we got the, all these doctors and nurses here. Why, we, we ought to be able to do something to help people. He says, I propose the formation of Christian help bands. This is another really technical term, okay? A Christian help band is a band of Christians that try to help people, okay? <laughs> so they put together Christian help band number one. Uh, fascinating story. A guy by the name of A.W. Simmons, Australian, was elected the leader of, of CHB number one. And they set off to, they were given a certain territory portion of town, and their job was to find out the needs of the people there. Somebody's sick, let's send in a nurse. Somebody hungry, try and get some food. Somebody's, you know, uh, broke, maybe we can help them. Maybe help them get a job. We, you know, let's help these people. This poor kid's trying to go to school. It's 40 degrees below zero out there, and all he's got is a T-shirt. Let's get him a jacket, you know. Let's help these people. That's what the Christian Help Band started to do. All that happened in 1892. One more thing happened that's of great significance in 1892. On the 22nd of November, Ellen White's comment shows up in the Review and Herald, the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ. Now, I'm going to do some ad-libbing because I just don't have time and I want to get through this one here right now. We have commonly associated this statement with the work of Jones and Wagner from 1888. I think there is correctness in doing that, okay? However, I have come to the serious belief that it incorporates, includes, and hinges on more than simply the work of Jones and Wagner. No question in my mind that the message of righteousness by faith, as presented by Jones and Wagner, uh, is... A, is correlated with the loud cry of the third angel, okay? But there's more to it than that. And I'm going to just skip over a whole bunch of stuff. It's interesting. This is where you can, uh, this publication right right? Hello, hello, hello. There you go. That publication is where you would actually find what Dr. Kellogg had to say about all this in the general conference session of 1893. Now, so here's the key thing. Let me just tell you this. November 22, 1892, Ellen White says, the loud cry of the third angel has begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ. Mm, about two months later, late January, early February, 1893, at the general conference session, right? I mean, so the prophet just said, the loud cry has begun, right? That's, that's the furthest we've ever gotten on the, on the you know, eschatological timeline type of thing, okay? You are here. We just moved that marker from here to here. Wow, we're here now. Okay, this is the beginning of the loud cry, okay? So there had to be a little, like, a little bit of a buzz, so to speak, you know, okay? Come to the general conference, wow, we're in the loud cry now. Things are getting closer. 
A.T. Jones presented a big series on the loud cry, the third angel's message, whatever. It's a great series. It's been reprinted at least three times. I recommend you read it. It's good. Okay. Dr. Kellogg also had eight meetings in the General Conference session of 1893. What's interesting is that they were not recorded. They were not reported. There's only a, well, there are two mentions of them in the entire 1893 General Conference session. On the very first page, it says Dr. Kellogg will be having a series on medical missionary work. There is no record of it. The only other record is simply once when A.T. Jones said, do you remember the other night when Dr. Kellogg said such and such? And he quoted like half a, half a sentence or whatever, okay? Only two times that these series of, are mentioned. Much to our historical loss, okay? It was 117 years from the time he gave those talks to the time that they were, attention was drawn to them, let's put it that way, okay? And that was, oh, it's a long story. I'd love to tell you the whole story, uh, whole thing. Um, they fell into my lap. It was a 28-year-long miracle that started with me hitchhiking from Colorado to Washington by way of Southern California. And uh, then 28, 27 years later, a guy from Oklahoma going to California, inheriting 32 boxes of papers and books that he had no idea what it was. He hauled them back to Oklahoma. They sat in storage for a year. He ended up dumping them off onto me. And in there... You don't understand the connections, but you know, in, in, in there, I found these sermons by Dr. Kellogg. Nobody paid any attention to them. They weren't reported in the General Conference Bulletin. They were reported in the Medical Missionary, but that wasn't an official Advanced publication, so the GC archives didn't even have a copy of that. Uh, so anyhow, the key thing is not all the drama going on around it, which is interesting from a historical point of view. The key thing is, what did Kellogg say? And skipping over all this stuff, explaining, oh, that's fascinating. I love that story, but I can't tell you. What Kellogg said, he started off pretty simple. He said, God says we should do good works. He quotes the Bible here. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now this is an interesting statement because you notice up there, um, God gives us all things to enjoy, right? That's nice. God's very generous. We're, he gives us all this stuff to enjoy, but then he talks about giving it away. How am I supposed to enjoy the stuff God gives me if I give it away? And the answer is, it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more fun giving it away. If you hang on to it, oh, good, you win, you know, what? You win a slinky or something. <laughs> you know, you've got whatever you got, man, that's it. Enjoy it, have fun. You're weird, dude. <laughs> okay. uh, if you give it away, you get to see the smile on some little kid's face. And then God gives you something else, and you give it away to some other little kid. And you know, okay. This was Kellogg's point. He says, we should be doing good. We don't have any right to accumulate this stuff. We should be giving away. Man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Those who believe in God should be careful to maintain good works. Let our people learn also to maintain good works. Okay, Titus, Timothy, you know, I'm just going through these. Uh, Redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And then Dr. Kellogg says, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul warns, exhorts us to be followers of me, even as I follow Christ. And Peter says he should follow his steps. In Acts, it says that he went about doing good. I'm summarizing a little bit here. It is evident then that if we are Christ's servants, if we follow Christ, we must also go about doing good. We are not to wait for the opportunities for doing good to come to us, but we must go about doing good, seeking opportunities to do good, to help the needy, bless and comfort the sorrowing, to uplift the fallen. We must search them out, not wait for them to hunt us up and move us to action by their appeals. We are not to be narrow. Oh, uh, this is all good. I'm going to skip it just for the sake of time. For years and years, and now is where he starts getting personal. For years and years, we have been well able to furnish a home for the aged. That was a part of his original plan, uh, along with the orphanage. You know, 
uh, a home for the aged, the infirm, the homeless, for poor widows, worn-out ministers, aged pilgrims, helpless children, members of our denomination, old pioneers in the cause who gave liberally of their property in the early days when the work was just beginning and whose faith and the truths which we profess has led them to put all their earnings into the cause instead of hoarding up a competency for themselves. What is a competency? That's old English for retirement fund. It's competent to keep me going, right? Okay, A competency is, is retirement fund. So these guys, they didn't, they didn't save for their retirement. We should honor them. We should care for them, right? All these worthy and deserving ones who appeal to us on, a, on fraternal as well as on humanitarian grounds, we have neglected in a manner which has become a denominational disgrace. Okay. <laughs> well, he quotes Ellen White. Everything in red is Ellen White. We have seen the widowed mother with her fatherless children working far beyond her strength in order to keep her little ones with her and prevent them from suffering for food and clothing. Many a mother has thus died from overexertion. And then Kellogg makes some comments. I just don't have time to read that. How little has been done by us as a people for this class. And Kellogg says, please think of that. This was said two years ago. <laughs> two years ago. <laughs> we haven't done anything yet. It's been two years. And I'm saying, yeah, well, say it's been 127 years. I guess we haven't done much yet either. Anyhow, okay. How little has been done by us as a people for this class. For mothers, for widowed mothers, have we not come far short of our duty? We are not doing as much as is done by other denominations. Now, I don't say this. The Lord says it. Kellogg says, don't, don't throw rocks at me. <laughs> okay. We have set ourselves up on a high pinnacle and say, we are God's special people. Our cause is the Lord's cause. And we talk about ourselves as being the peculiar people. And yet we are not doing as much Christian work, and Christian work of a very important character, as other denominations are doing. Again, it is right that more should be expected of us than of others. That's Ellen White. Now the question is whether Seventh-day Adventists are going to lead in this work or is it going to be left for someone else to do? The Lord has given us here a very precious work to do. It is not the whole of the third angel's message, but it is a part of it. You read in Isaiah 58 how we can make our light shine. If thy draw thy soul the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. Oh, let's see. I'm just going to skip that slide. Um, <clears throat> I'm skip that slide because I want to get to the real point. This is the point. Almost coincidentally, almost casually, he just drops a bombshell. If we want the loud cry to begin, brethren, that is a place where it's going to begin. The loud cry is going to begin with our doing the things that the Lord in Isaiah 58 says come before the loud cry. So he says we must draw out our soul of the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. He says if we will do this, our light shall shine. If, the, if we want the loud cry to begin... Oops, no, 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 there we go. Okay. The gospel is the power of God. Uh, you know, I'm going to skip that for sake of time. It's good too, but you know, going on what he was just saying. If the loud cry has been begun by our people, it must be because we have just begun to do a little in the way of letting our light shine. But we've done so little in that way that it seems to me that before the loud cry will make any great noise in the world, we'll have to let our light shine a great deal brighter than we have ever yet done because the works come first. The light must shine through these good works before we can be called the repairers, the breach, restorers, the passage dwelling. For that promise comes after all these conditions, you see. And he's exactly right. What he's saying is, if you want to see the loud cry, look at the end of Isaiah 58. The Lord will guide you continually. Satisfy, the soul, uh, satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. He will, um, he will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. You'll ride in the high places of the earth. You'll be like a water garden whose waters fail not. All those promises, that's the loud cry. That's the latter rain. And it's all conditional. If you deal your bread to the hungry, if you bring the poor or cast out, if you satisfy the afflicted soul, if you do what Jesus did, if you demonstrate the character of your father, which is the only weapon that God has in his arsenal against Satan. And if you do it the way Jesus did it, it doesn't mean miracles, but a combination of teaching the truth and practical ministry, medical missionary work. I think Kellogg nailed it on the head right here. I wish he'd said it a little bit differently. Some people look at this and say, well, Ellen White said, 
that the loud cry had already begun two months before. Is he doubting Ellen White? No, he's not doubting Ellen White. Give me a break. You don't know your history if you think Kellogg's doubting Ellen White in 1893. Kellogg was Ellen White's strongest supporter in Battle Creek in 1890. Plenty of other people were doubting Ellen White. She was off in Australia, right? All she could do at this point is write letters back. Kellogg, when he got these letters at the sanitarium, he'd, he'd call, bring all the workers in, we got some testimonies from Ellen White, and he was a short guy, so he'd stand up on a table, and he'd read these letters, and the tears would roll down his face, he said, the Lord has blessed us with this instruction, what are we going to do about it now? You know? Kellogg was Ellen White's strongest supporter, he's certainly not trying to pick a fight with her here when, in the wording, so like I said, I, w- I wish he would have worded it differently, but anyhow. Okay. Now, in the middle of all this, Kellogg quoted a Bible verse that had never attracted my attention before, but it's one of my favorites now. I just really like it. Okay? Notice this. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he, capital H, will pay back what he, little h, has given. So, suppose... I need a hundred bucks. And so I come to Andre here. I say, uh, yeah, I got a bit of an issue. Um, I, I need a hundred bucks. Could you lend me a hundred bucks? Sure. Oh, okay. What a nice guy. Okay. So he lends me a hundred dollars. Now, what has changed in our relationship? I now owe him. Okay. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. Who owes whom what? Do you ever think you could put God in your debt? Yeah. And the best part of it is, he's not going to skip out on you. He'll actually repay. <laughs> some people, yeah, you don't always get your money back on some of these operations. Okay? I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's happened to me on an occasion. God will repay. And Kellogg says, trust him. Here's the simple way. This is just my words to say this. Jones and Wagner came, the message of righteousness by faith, and they said, stop looking at men. Look to Christ, in whom our hopes of eternal life are centered. Christ is everything he is capable. The great defect of the righteousness by faith message of the 1890s was that for the vast majority of people, the furthest extent it ever made was Christ is capable to save my soul. Praise the Lord. And that was true. But Christ is capable of a lot more than that. Remember, Ellen White summed up the, the preaching in 1888, Jones and Wagner. She says, I see the matchless charms of Jesus. Now, Ellen White was certifiably female. And, you know... Sometimes guys say things a little differently than the ladies do. Let me put that into guy speak. Jesus can do stuff nobody else can do. He's good. Yeah. He can do stuff. He can take care of me when I'm broke. He can take care of me when I'm helping these people out here. And that's what Kellogg caught. Kellogg caught... Well, look at that, man. These guys said, Jesus is everything. Jesus is good. i got Jesus on myself. That frees me up. I don't have to take care of myself. I can, take, I can spend my time doing what Jesus did, taking care of other people. And this goes right back to the inception of sin in Lucifer's mind. Remember? Trust is the key. If I distrust God's wisdom or his love, I can't depend on God to take care of me. I've got to take care of myself. It's when I got to take care of myself that I'm, you know, I'm, I hate to say it, but I'll kill you if I have to because I need that food. Right? Loss of faith in God is the catalyst for all sin. Consequently, righteousness comes through faith. Kellogg got that, at least to a degree. And if we go back to Ellen White's statement, we can see the hint in it right there. This is a little more context. The time of test is just upon us. For the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin-pardoning Redeemer. This is the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory shall fill the whole earth. 
There's a couple of key things here. Notice those words. Where do those words come from? Yeah? They're also drawn from Isaiah and I think it's Hosea, if I remember right, I'm not sure, I forget which, to, to the prophets. Do I have that in some notes here or something? No, I don't have that in notes. Yeah, it's someplace. Notice this. We shall see, it's, it's, well, okay, yeah, let's just go ahead and read this. We shall see the medical missionary work broadening and deepening at every point of its progress until the whole earth is covered as the waters cover the sea. Okay? Isaiah, I think, says the, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And then another one says the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the, knowledge, as the waters cover the sea. Technically speaking, I suppose you could argue about some polar ice caps or something, but water covers the ocean. <laughs> okay? The top side of the ocean is going to be water, as near as I got it figured. Okay? The glory of the Lord, which is the character of God, is going to be revealed... And cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And how is that going to be done? It's going to be done the same way Jesus did it. The revelation of the character of his Father. Now I want you to notice the, the statement of Ellen White up in the top there. Notice this word. She does not say that the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the proclamation of the righteousness of, God, of Christ. It's the revelation of the righteousness of Christ. The revelation is different than proclamation. Proclamation goes right alongside it. It's good. Not, not faulting that. But proclamation without revelation is misinformation. Okay. Uh, da, 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 da. I'm a little bit long on time already. How much? Um, I'm going to skip that one. Let's go on. How important is this? pretty important. I want to tell you that when the gospel ministers and the medical mission workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. Okay, now a little quick grammar lesson. What part of speech is the word worst? Anybody? Only got eight to choose from, so you've got a, what, 12.5% chance of getting it right? What part of speech is worst? It's an adjective. It's a special class of adjective. Anybody know what kind of adjective it is? No, it actually is a superlative. It is, yeah. The opposite of worst would be best. But uh, yeah, you've got bad, and then you've got worse, and then you've got worst. And a superlative is as far as you can go in any direction, right? So here's my question. Is Ellen White, like, like, hyperventilating here or something? Really? This is the worst evil? I mean, come on. Maybe the General Conference President's a Jesuit. Wouldn't that be bad? This is worse. The worst evil. How can it be the worst evil? My humble guess is because it can confuse us into thinking we're doing something that's going to finish God's work and we can spend our whole life doing that which is categorically incapable of ever finishing God's work. It is impossible through words to reveal the character of the Father. Jesus couldn't do it. Odds are you can't either. Now, you know, if you think you can do a better job than Jesus, I'm happy for you. I'm thinking you can't. I'm thinking you are going to have to do the same thing he did which is a combination of teaching and healing, medical missionary work. If you don't, I think you're suffering from the worst evil. We've been there for about 110 years, just historically speaking. One example of that, Christ's ministers... Now, before we you know, start taking up our rocks and throwing them at the minister ministers, right? We are all ministers in a degree, Yes? Okay? You know, if you're not, well, join the team. You've you, you got to get on board here. Okay? So, I, yes, this applies to ordained, you know, employed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we're talking about them. But it's talking about us, too. So let's not get too, you know, high and mighty on this. Okay? Christ's ministers must stand in an altogether different position. They must be evangelists. They must be 
medical missionaries. They must take hold of the work intelligently, but it is of no use for them to think that they can do this while they drop the work which God has said should be connected with the gospel. If they drop out the medical missionary work, they need not think that they can carry forward their work successfully, for they have only half the necessary facilities. You want a challenge? Try doing what God says is impossible. Just try. You'll have a challenge. You'll beat your head against the wall every day. But, you know, if that's all you really want is a challenge in life, go for it. <laughs> okay. Well, that's the lesson of the good Kellogg. We didn't make it to the bad Kellogg. Unfortunately, that's what followed. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we pray you'll go with us. That you would... Uh, I don't know, somehow beat us over the head till we get the idea that when Jesus asked us to follow him, he probably meant it. That we ought to be doing what he did. That we should take up the work in the same sort of way to the best of our ability. Increase our ability, Lord, as we make feeble efforts, help us to learn Help us to gain skill. Help us to become men and women of whom Christ is not embarrassed because we do what he's asked us to do. Bless us to this end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.